Chemtrails is intended for mature audiences only. Thanks for tuning in to the Chemtrails podcast, where you get the latest topics within the culture with the uncensored, unscripted facts and opinions from our crew. part of uh, particularly the black and Latino community out there because you see uh, Latino immigrants being basically, you know, shuttled into these warehouse jobs, um, but not paid Mm -hmm. as they would, you know, appropriately be paid. And you see these uh, very predatory temp agency type policies that don't hire them, but contract them. Oh, it's interesting. Which is why I was asking the question. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. It definitely makes you think. But I have to say, I don't think the business community, because they donate money. Like, I mean, that poultry example is really a strong one. What happened to those employers? Did they just get a slap on the wrist when they really should have been fined and put out of business? I mean, I, you know, I'm an immigration lawyer. I want, I want people to come here, but I want them to do it the right way, too. Absolutely. You know, I, I want the country to thrive. And I'm a business owner, too. I don't want my business to fall. Or So I understand what business owners are going through. But that's where you need to have that balance. And that's why the law needs to change for that reason, you know. So you ask some really good questions. And, you know, I hope your listeners will, you know, appreciate the episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are tuned in to the Chemtrails Podcast. You've got your host, Trader Dre. I'm flying solo today. The other guys are out at work, but uh, we've got a great show lined up for you. We have an awesome guest. Um, I can't wait to introduce you guys to her. She is uh, a passionate advocate um, and lawyer for uh, immigration. Uh, she is a speaker, a blogger, an author. She actually hosts her own podcast, uh, Tamina Talks Immigration, which you can find on iTunes. And uh, today we're going to be talking about something we have never crossed uh, before on our podcast. We're going to be talking about immigration. Tamina, welcome to the show. Andre, thank you so much for having me. And hello to your co-hosts who could be here today. <laughs> Let's jump right into the takeoff. Uh, with the United States, we kind of have this weird uh, sort of attitude shift. And it used to be that everyone was proud of their immigrant heritage. And we used to have just basically be a nation where we were proud of the immigrants and what they built. But over the last 15, 20 years, it feels like we start to blame immigrants for all the problems that come up in our country. And I'm wondering, what's kind of your take on this changing attitude on immigration? You know, that's a very important question for us to ponder on, particularly as we go into 2021. 2020 has been a year of reflection. We've sort of had to take stock of our lives and what really matters. And what has actually been exposed is how important immigrants really are in this country. 
And you're, you're right that we've lost sight of that to some extent. Anybody listening to this podcast or here or later on, there's some sort of immigrant connection, whether you were born here or not. You're either first, second, third generation or many other generations. But if you're not Native American, you have come from immigrant heritage. And that background is so important. There has has been different times in different eras where scapegoats have been made of immigrants uh, of different backgrounds. So if we sort of look at history just for a, a very brief moment, when uh, America was connecting the East Coast to the West Coast with the, the train tracks, we needed labor. And so we had a lot of Asian uh, folks come in and provide that labor to connect uh, the country from one coast to the, the other with the train tracks. But once those were done, we had this Chinese Exclusion Act. It was the first time that there was a law that actually banned people from coming in. But that was in the uh, late 1800s. I forget the year for that. Oh, a early 1900s, and and soon thereafter, in the in the 1920s, these immigration laws that have sort of uh, come along one after another, uh, they have tried to address it in some respect, but there's always been a way of limiting who comes in, and that limitation is one group or another group or another group, and and in the political rhetoric, there's been one group um, um, that's been sort of challenged uh, over another group. So over the years that that the Asian population uh, was allowed to come back in, but then it was the Irish population that was frowned upon. And over the years, that's grown to now it's the Muslim population or just immigrants or, you know, as a blanket um, a statement. But what is so important to realize is immigrants have built this country. Whichever industry you're in, whichever aspect you look at, immigrants have built this country. If you think about your daily life today, a lot of people in this pandemic are using Zoom for everything, whether you're socializing, whether you're working, whether you're having your um, doctor's appointment, your lawyer's appointment, whether your school is having remote schooling, all of it is done through technology and Zoom is one of them. But the Zoom founder was actually denied his visa eight times over the last decade. He was not allowed to come. Eventually he did. And, you know, here we are with Zoom. But in the pandemic where we can't go out and we can't communicate, we're using WhatsApp a lot. That WhatsApp founder is also an immigrant. Uh, you know, you can't go to the bank much these days. And so you're using various online platforms to send money, raise money, what have you. Stripe is one of them. Uh, and Stripe.com, the founders uh, are immigrants. If you think about the grocery store, the only place that we were allowed to go to uh, in, as soon as the pandemic began to buy your groceries and your essentials, you had those shining apples. Um, on the on the on the grocery shelves, so you can pick them, and get them into your baskets. But apples are being picked by immigrants still. You know, if you think about the salmon you're eating, immigrants are doing that. So if you think about the and the healthcare industry, oh my gosh, doctors, the nurses, a very large portion of the essential workers we have today are immigrants. So whichever era you look back on, and whichever industry you look at and whichever part of your own life you look at immigrants immigrants are in 
integrated into that without even you knowing. So often it's just an invisible force, except they're not invisible. They're right there. And when President Trump came into office, as he was uh, inciting, um, you know, adverse um, thoughts towards groups, different groups, immigrants were one of them. And we remember seeing the Muslim ban. It was part of the, the rhetoric of the campaign trail. So when people at this point express their nationalism and that America first uh, and make America great again, all of these things um, cannot be looked upon in isolation because it, takes us away from what makes us actually great. Uh, you know, I say to people often that nobody's a village. Whether I'm in my capacity as a mother, I need support around me. If I'm a lawyer, I need support around me. Um, if I'm a community organizer, I need those support, su supports around me. I'm a, a micro example of this. If you're in a school district, it's the same, and a country is the same. If you look at the pandemic, a tiny Wuhan um, virus, a, a virus that emanated in Wuhan, has spread around the world. We don't have six degrees of a separation anymore. We are so connected. So America really is a country that cannot operate on its own. And so these nationalistic thoughts of it's just us will actually take us away from the global super, superpower that we have been. And these policies, the, the thought process of how we treat immigrants really gives uh, people the, the notion that America really doesn't want immigrants and people from different countries don't want to come here anymore. And that has been reflected in recent history where students are not coming here as much as they used to. Um, you know, people with high skills and with technology um, the way it is, they can work anywhere in the world. So they don't necessarily need to be in the US. So, so this kind of takes away from the value of, say, an H-1B or, or even the American education system, especially since during this pandemic, our education system has not been operating at the capacity it used to. Let me let me jump in another point here. So I know we didn't really let you get a chance to truly introduce yourself personally to the audience, but um, it's clear to everyone at this point, based on your accent, <laughs> that you are not native-born American. That's uh, true. Can, you, can you tell us <laughs> a little bit about one, the immigration process, because this sounds very personal to you. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what an immigration lawyer does in the process and kind of reflect a little bit on where the where the stereotypes went. Uh, you, were, you mentioned President Trump and during his campaign rhetoric, there was a lot of um, there's a lot of immigrants come here, they click their heels three times, they spin around and boom, they're a, a natural citizen or something like that. <laughs> and it was so many misconceptions about how the immigration process works. He kept saying we have the easiest process, people just skip across the border. My personal experience has not been that with the immigration process. <laughs> and I'm curious as to if you could just walk us through a little bit of what that process really entails. 
Well, thank you for asking that question. And I have to tell you, I'm going to quote you about the click your heel three times because that truly is the message that's been given. Uh, but you you really give us that very nice image of it. My background, yes, I, you know, if they've tuned into my accent, I moved here from the United Kingdom. I was born and raised there. But I actually think of myself as an international person at this point. My parents were are from Bangladesh, which is a small country next to India where the Rohingya refugees are currently. They've been in the news for that. And my parents had immigrated to the United Kingdom in the 60s. So I essentially was from an immigrant background in the UK, but I never felt like an immigrant really in the UK because I was born and raised there. But when I moved to the US and I, I moved to the US because I met the love of my life on a blind date in Seattle, which I dub now Sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> and it was a long distance relationship for three years before I moved here. But it was a baby lawyer in the UK. And so when I had to move to the US, I, I didn't move here for the American dream or to be a lawyer. I really, my dream was to be with the love of my life. And so when I moved here, I had to then restructure my life and I, long story short, became a lawyer uh, and an immigration lawyer. I was a lawyer in the UK, but it didn't easily transfer over. And I fell into immigration law and I went into it kicking and screaming, thinking, well, this is just going to be tugging at my heart all the time because immigration is just asylum law. And uh, my father was a, an immigration lawyer in the UK. So I saw a lot of asylum law at the time, not realizing it could be so much more than that. And so I went in, when I fell into immigration, um, I first had to go through the immigration process myself to even live here. My husband's a US citizen, he sponsored me. And I had already gone through the process of how do I immigrate here? What paperwork do I need? You know, how long does it take? I felt trapped while the application was processing. My father was very sick, I couldn't leave the country. Um, eventually I got my green card as that um, coincided with my getting my practicing license. And when I fell into immigration law, I fell in love with it because it's extremely challenging. And so it's not easy at all, despite what the uh, president wants to have people believe. Uh, and it also is fast moving in the sense that you can see your case from beginning to end with the results, the happy ending most of the time anyway. And you're reuniting people who love each other or you're helping businesses grow, whether they're starting their own businesses or finding talent that they desperately need. And so I really, I realized very quickly that I was making a true impact on people's lives, which is exactly what I wanted to do uh, in life as a lawyer. But I also realized that my background of being um, a person of color, somebody who has come from uh, another country and gone through the process, somebody who understands different cultures you know it's interesting where my parents are you know from south asia but a lot of the cultural things are same whether you're coming from latin america it's all about family it's all about the food it's all about you know how do i make sure my nuclear family is with me or how you know make sure education is a priority for my child a lot of these values are the same so when somebody says well you'll understand i really do 
understand. I understand being separated from your loved one. I understand the cultural issues and I speak, you know, my the language my parents speak, which is Bengali. And everybody who lives in South Asia grows up with with Bollywood music and, you know, Bollywood films. So I understand Hindi. I can I can get away with a little bit of Hindi. I had a client once say, Tamina, Tamina, it's okay, Tamina, you don't have to speak Hindi with me <laughs> because I was embarrassing them with my, my broken Hindi, but at least they understood me. You know, it's that connection that is so important when you're helping somebody with the most important thing in their lives, their livelihood or their loved ones, they really have to trust you. So it's, it's a very big burden that I carry, but I carry it with love and responsibility and with this eagerness to make sure that anybody who says this is my dream, that I try to make it come true. And I will add that I said earlier that, you know, coming to America wasn't my dream. I didn't have the American dream, but I do have an article that I've written in the Seattle Times when I became a citizen. And what I say in that is, you know, all of us have dreams and aspirations. You have life goals. And my goal was to be a lawyer and have a, a, a wonderful husband and a happy family and be able to have a happy profession um, where I'm helping people. And so even though I didn't have that American dream necessarily, dream is the American dream and I've achieved it. So when a client says to me, that's my dream, suddenly something inside me sort of bubbles up and say, oh my God, they use the magic words. You know, oh my gosh, I've now got to turn every stone over to find whatever it is that makes their dream come true. And that's what really makes me passionate and perhaps a little different from other people because I've gone through it so much and I feel so much gratitude for the blessings that I've received and recognize it's incumbent on me to give back and I give back as a lawyer in my profession but I give back in the community and so your question about why do people need lawyers is so important because when you know let's say you you have a podcast and let's call it a business and you are coming from a different country you just know that you will have a listenership in 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 america you'll have a consumer base in america you know if you make it in america you could probably make it anywhere else therefore people want to come here but the visa system is not easy which visa do you apply for do you meet those requirements do you have the paperwork you might superficially meet them. Yes, I can tell you I've been written about in a newspaper. Oh, what does that newspaper look like? How many um, use, how many papers are circulated daily? How many, you know, cyber traffic, you know, hits does it have? Mm. So there it's not just meeting the minimum requirements. It's about where you place on that spectrum. That's exactly right. And so every visa category has, uh, you know, layers that you have to go through. And none of those are easy. They were never easy. But in the last four years, they've been made even more difficult. We have never seen uh, as many denials in employment-based cases, uh, in the, you know, as we have in the last four years. And one of the things that this president said in the, in the rhetoric, he was going to have a border wall, you know, he's going to make immigration difficult. What we saw is, yes, a border wall has been attempted. There's a lot of money to DHS for it, and they are building something. But what we didn't anticipate in the way that has transpired is an invisible wall. We first had the Muslim ban, banning people from certain countries. And once he realized he could get away with a ban in the, in, in the 
months of COVID, he was able to use COVID as the excuse of all the other things he wanted to achieve that Congress wouldn't let him. So you might remember the word uh, chain migration. It really wasn't, uh, you know, um, regular vocabulary at the time, or at least before 2016. Uh, yet his family members have used family-based immigration to come to the United States. Chain migration is really a derogatory term for family-based immigration, spouses, children, parents. And he didn't want parents to come to the U.S. You know, one of the misconceptions was that was thrown around in this particular area was, oh, you're bringing your grandparents and your aunts and cousin and so forth. That's not true. You can only apply for your immediate family, spouse, children, siblings, and parents. So and that was a huge misconception then because the way it was described uh, was that people would get one family in and then they'd bring the entire extended family across and that would you know, basically build a village. <laughs> mm. Yes. Right and, uh, and over time, maybe that could happen. If I sponsor my sibling, um, my sibling comes over. It's nothing as quick. It takes 15 plus years for a sibling to migrate. But this and is sometimes it's more. But this the the intent of the laws and the regulations was to provide for, say, mothers and fathers of American born children, um, that kind and siblings, uh, that type of deal, right? Yeah, so. and actually naturalized citizens too, because once you become a naturalized citizen, uh, you are able to sponsor these family members who are in different places. And so what COVID allowed the, the president to do is suddenly sign a piece of paper called an executive order saying we are now banning all parents and siblings from getting their green cards. And that ban is in place until December 31st. We expect it to be, uh, you know, extended for as long as he's in office, I think. We'll, we'll wait to see on that. But also, you know, workers have come under attack too. You know, there's a visa called an H-1B visa that is used in the technology industry, but actually it's used in every industry. I was going to say it has a multiple categories. If I yeah. All you have to do is be, uh, what is like, amongst the top experts in your field, prove that your mm -hmm. skills uh, make it so that, you know, you are a needed person in this industry with this company and they can validate and sponsor you based on that, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a, that that what you just mentioned could be something called an O visa, where you're at the top echelon of your profession. But the H-1B visa, the minimum requirement is that you have a degree in the job that you will be performing. And so, um, if you if I'm a lawyer, I cannot apply for a doctor's job, for example, but I can apply for a lawyer's job. It's a professional, high skilled, um, you know, visa, and that's the. That's the primary visa that's used in most companies, in hospitals, for teachers, architects, engineers, engineers of all types, whether you're an electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, or computer engineer. And it, basically the rhetoric was, these people are taking our jobs away. And the truth is that it, that, that is not happening. It, you know, this pandemic is exposing so much of what is not true. You know, of, if you just look at your phone, the handset, the software, and the network, 
all of those are being, you know, maintained with a large portion of high skilled immigrants. If you go to the doctor, you'll see a lot of immigrant doctors. If you go to schools, there are a lot of immigrant, you know, um, professors. Uh, and so that visa was uh, basically said to be taking jobs away. So he's now put a lot of um, limitations and restrictions. And so these restrictions one by one was a brick. It was one brick over another brick and that invisible wall that we didn't really hear on the rhetoric in the same way is so high that even though we will have may uh, we will have amazing leadership from a Biden Harris administration, it will take them a long time to, you know, de-brick the wall. Um, and so wow. we're, we're in difficult times. <laughs> <laughs> All right. For for our audience that I know that was a little bit long for our takeoff, but a lot of information and a lot of gems in there. Uh, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back uh, for the cruising altitude. want to be part of the chemtrails family join the group you can find us on facebook and ask for access to our group you'll be one of the first to know everything chemtrails all right we are back with the cruising altitude my first question is with the Trump immigration policy, can you tell me what that actually meant for applicants and what it meant for you as an immigration attorney? You know, one day I'll write about uh, the story of the last four years in my daily practice. I have a book that just came out. It's all about the pro bono work I did. Um, immigration policy has never been so incessant and adverse in such a short period of time. From the moment uh, Trump came into office, even today, the policies are changing drastically and um, very quickly. It's almost difficult to even catch what change happened today. Um, when the Muslim ban happened, for my applicants, and I'll take two different categories, the employment-based category and the family-based category. Suddenly, you know, people who were scheduled to have interviews, they couldn't have their interviews anymore because they're part of a banned category. I had a client from Iran where we, um, and Iran is still banned, the citizens from Iran, who could not get their visa. And they had waited two years to get to the point of getting the interview and suddenly it, it, it was they were banned. We had to wait a very long time and go through various different challenges to be able to get this Iranian client into the country. Um, that meant a lot of sweat, a lot of frustration, a lot of tears, a lot of money, a lot of uh, frustration and uh, research. What do we do now? A lot of collaboration with other lawyers to see what is the latest thing today? What can we try? Uh, and advocacy. 
just making sure your voice gets heard with your representatives became ever more important. No matter what the policy is, whether it's immigration or anything, if you have something that's bothering you with a government policy, your best friend has to be your congressperson or your senator. So if there's a nugget to take away from that, make sure you take away that, that your representative is meant to represent you. Um, for employment-based clients who are employers, suddenly they had employees stuck outside the country who could not come back in, or employees who needed to go outside the country for one reason or another who couldn't leave the country. So suddenly we were having dizzying amounts of uh, questions and how do we solve the problems. In some cases, we couldn't solve them. We had to say, okay, just stay put wherever you are. And then months went by before we could actually find something for them to do. But I'll give you a recent um, ex uh, example. There's something called public charge. Public charge is a term that has been used to show that if you are an immigrant coming into the U.S., whether, uh, particularly in the family-based scenario, you have a U.S. citizen sponsor you. Spouse, you know, we just went through the categories. But at that time, sponsorship really meant that you, the U.S. citizen, is, uh, are showing your financial ability to provide this other person's, you know, food, lodging, what have you. And you may remember the part of the rhetoric was immigrants are taking our jobs away, they're taking Social Security. Immigrants are not allowed to have Social Security benefits of any type, shape or form, unless you're an asylum or a refugee, maybe. And even that is very limited. Um, but what they did using that rhetoric is create a new rule saying this immigrant, in addition to the sponsorship, has to show their own um, self-sufficiency, financial self-sufficient, that they will never reach the government's uh, pockets for assistance. That really created a huge burden. You now have to show your health records, your um, education, your skills, your own income, your savings, uh, and that you can speak English. There's just a lot of restrictions that are put on there that really is a license to deny. And that particular rule has been under attack uh, from lawyers, from advocacy organizations. So it's been under litigation for months and months and months. It only went into effect just before COVID began on February 24th. And we haven't really seen it uh, adjudicated, but we have had to file these papers. But it suddenly made the work treble in, in, in uh, uh, the effort that we had to put in. It also increased the cost because a lot of people wouldn't have the documents that we needed to have from them. But in the meantime, since March to now, the courts have had it on again and off again, on again and off again. So we're preparing documents and suddenly we're like, oh, I don't think we have to file it today. And then three days later, we're like, oh no, we have to file it. And then the next week we're like, uh, actually we don't have to file it. And to be honest, it's really been a very frustrating situation, particularly in the last um, nine months, because we don't know if we're coming or going. And so when we found a little window, when it was off again, we filed paperwork for a lot of our clients. And suddenly when it was on again, the government sent questions saying, send me this form. So we're back to like, you know, uh, squirreling away on the paperwork. And right this moment, it's off again. I hope you're with me. <laughs> I'm completely lost. But I can, but, I can, 
I guess we can clearly see how frustrating and how uh, confusing this process can be. So uh, yeah, it's been very another good reason why we why we need lawyers. In this. Yeah, and um, the lawyers, it's really difficult for us to sort of navigate all these changes. And God bless anybody who's trying to do it on their own, because when you're trying to do it on your own, you're missing all the other things that have happened. Sometimes there are nuances. One example is if you're here as a tourist, and suddenly you're stuck because your plane was cancelled several times over. You're now filing an application, but a new procedure was put in place for fingerprinting, which wasn't required before. But that one fingerprinting uh, requirement prolonged the case for nine months plus because USCIS offices, immigration offices were closed. So you cannot even do those fingerprints. And then there are many other complications that come with that, but a tiny little change that you know, nobody really thinks would be problematic because it's, oh, you know, I'll give biometrics. It can be no devastating problem. to someone, right? Let me ask this because you've brought it up a couple of times and this is um, regarding sort of economic prosperity, but more importantly, let's start with jobs. The common thing, or the common saying is that immigrants come in, they take the jobs and this, that, and the other. Now, for some groups, that's not necessarily the case over the long haul. I think it's evident that immigration in America, at least, has always spurred economic, uh, economic growth. But what about specifically um, the minority population that is not in those high skill, um, high education jobs, those uh, let's put it towards the the more working class for the working class there's more and more documentation and more evidence coming out that they are being negatively impacted and and what we're seeing is immigrants being ill or i should say illegal immigrants being um used <laughs> in in unprofessional and unsavory ways to lower the cost for a lot of these sort of like warehouse jobs and stuff like that. And what that's doing is having impacts on other minority groups that are in the working class. Um, what can we do to kind of protect against that and to, you know, sort of answer to the working class that is being impacted by immigration about what is happening and what needs to happen going forward? You know, that's a really important question. And sometimes, uh, particularly during the COVID time, I've said many times, I'm glad I'm not a politician making difficult decisions because it's a balancing act uh, for sure. Uh, and the law has to be applied to everybody equally. Now, let's take the low skilled um, immigrants and what they do uh, as an ex as you know, to answer your question. There's nothing low skill about what these people do. Let's just be clear about that. The work is difficult no matter what you do. It's backbreaking work. It's hard work. It, it's it's a sometimes thankless work, but it's important work. And what are those jobs? And let's take some examples in the agricultural industry particularly, uh, there is this notion that uh, we don't have enough workers. If you talk to any farmer, uh, they will say, well, I want to hire American workers. I can't find them. They don't take these jobs and therefore I have to hire people who want them. And often they are people who have immigrated from Latin America, let's say. 
um, they are often illegal immigrants. And so, uh, you know, how how the, the industry actually navigates that, I wouldn't necessarily know, but they hire them because there's a need for them. If you look at the, the, the apples and the tomatoes and what have you, somebody needs to pick them. And you often have um, farmers are your best people to tell you they cannot get workers for them. So what's the solution? We need a visa category that specifically addresses, quote unquote, low skilled workers. We need a guest worker program because if you can have an actual guest worker program that works, then you can really um, uh, address this issue from a holistic perspective. You've got to have give and take. Employers are not allowed to actually employ um, undocumented people. They're not allowed to, but that is not enforced as strongly as it likely needs to be. And so there's the element of enforcement that isn't happening the way it should be. So what, what is our solution? We actually need comprehensive immigration reform. Our, our immigration laws are from the 1950s and 60s. And the world, as you know, your listeners know, has changed several times over. You know, the 80s came, the 90s came, the, you know, um, Y2K came and went. We're now uh, 2020. And that all these years later, our life has changed, our needs have changed, the, the way we operate has not kept in, in with them. A so, lot of, go ahead. Well, with this, I look at, because we brought up COVID multiple times and we talk about what's changed. And the biggest thing I noticed that has changed has been sort of the expansion of the gig economy, the freelance worker, the uh, need for the I-9 or excuse me, the W-9 uh, form out there because everybody's a contractor now. Well, do you feel like this has given rise to a greater opportunity for the exploitation of immigrants? Because as you said, uh, companies can't hire in other words, they cannot W-2 an, an illegal immigrant, but they can hire a contractor to do contracted services because they're not, they're not hiring. Well, it, it's not the same. It's not, they're not W-2ing it, right? They're just signing on and contracting services at that point. They're not bringing that person into their organization. They're simply outsourcing a job. And I look yeah. at this and I say, this opens up room for greater exploitation when you have temp agencies, et cetera, like that, that will simply push whoever they can find into, um, into these jobs and positions, and they'll do whatever they can to get someone in there that doesn't necessarily require the full pay that an American citizen might demand. Uh, what, do you th what are your thoughts on that? That's the really good question and to be honest nobody's actually asked me that before i'll have to look at some statistics now let's let's break that down a little um and we're still sticking to the low uh skilled worker economy yes. let's say because if you're a high in the high skilled profession you absolutely need to be an i9 w4 employee uh sponsorship um but in the low skill economy let's 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 look like example you know if you are a secretary let's say uh photocopying some 
something somewhere through a temp agency. Those temp agencies, and I, I did it for just a little while early on in my in my time in the US. I remember filling out a lot of paperwork to show I'm somebody who's allowed to work. So if you're going through a temp agency, through these I'm allowed to work situation, even though it's temping. But in the gig economy, um, that is very different and it depends on the type of job you're doing. Can you ride Uber? I don't know what the Uber driver's requirements are. I really just don't know, but you likely have to show to Uber you have permission to work. I, do, I don't know. I would say, you know, the, but maybe there's a there's a way in which you one of the the areas in which i get a lot of questions and say hey i need a visa is the elderly um home care nursing type situation not necessarily in a hospital but somebody who needs the hospice sort of like at home i forget what they're called um, there's some sort of care homes well, and they generally care workers and often this is like this is going right into the area i was looking at this is one of those things where we look at uh, as technology skills and requirements are increasing what you're seeing is that people that, that do not have the technology skills often find themselves relegated to jobs in uh, retail uh, labor and care work Hey, Chemtrail listeners, if you out there and you're making a positive impact in your community, well, we would love to showcase your work. Just email us at chemtrailspodcast at gmail.com. I don't know if retail necessarily, it depends on what kind of retail I need. Immediately my head goes to Nordstrom, but I guess you could look at a grocery store. Um, that's because you're in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. And Nordstrom was an immigrant just to, you know, just to put it out there. Um, but it's, it depends on where. So the restaurant industry, for example, is a good example because they will tell you they cannot find people who will do the job. And it comes back to that balancing of, do you have enough workers who will do that particular job that often people will consider is beneath them? Um, because who wants to wash dishes all the time? And so there is that sort of um, issue. So when it comes to low skilled, I think one of the analysis that needs to happen is even break down those jobs. What are the jobs that we are really concerned about that people are taking away from us? I know that restaurant owners will say, yes, I cannot find somebody to wash my dishes. You know, maybe there'll be some people who can serve but often they cannot find the dishwasher, which is a big part of the restaurant hospitality industry. They cannot, you know, if you're looking at a, a hotel, they are obligated to hire people who have work authorization. But 
I don't, I can't speak for any hotel owners because I don't have them as clients, but you know, maybe you want to think about who's changing the sheets in, in the, in, on the beds. Can you find American workers to do that? It's very much about this. Um, there's this one side of the argument where they're taking our jobs away from us, but they're not listing what are the jobs that are being taken away from you. And then let's look at those jobs and see who are the people doing these jobs and do they have visas? If the answer is no, it goes directly into this argument that we need a guest worker visa anyway for every type of low skill job, which will then allow you to really scrutinize those employers. You know, let's take the chicken poultry example in Kansas or wherever, where a chicken farmer was, uh, was it a year ago even at this point, where they really came and did an investigation and raided the, the chicken farm, uh, the poultry um, factory, and all of them were immigrants, right? I think all of them were immigrants. And all of those immigrants were in the news, their lives were torn apart, you know, some had children in school, they were definitely detained and prosecuted. But what happened to those employers? That's a good question. And, you know, you're really kind of hitting right into the area I was I was looking at because we see companies like Tyson, companies like Purdue, companies like Smithfield, they, all these meatpacking, processing, um, industry jobs, they have continually thrived on being able to hire out of the uh, uh, the poorest of American uh, communities. And when they find a way to supplement their workforce without having to necessarily bring on American uh, labor, that's a huge impact to those communities that need those jobs. So um, it's just so one I of those things that I look at and I just say, okay, well, here you see Again, another example of people, one, being exploited, two, uh, a determined impact on an American that is already underserved. I agree. So I think the entire law needs to change. So it, it actually addresses the needs we have in 2020, coming up to 2021, and laws need to be enforced. You know, one of the things that um, President Obama faced, um, he, was, he was dubbed the deporter-in-chief because he actually did deport the largest number of people. Trump will say, I didn't deport that many people. But what Trump has done is significantly worse. He has violated human rights. Even like this morning, uh, he's really changed uh, some more policies on asylum where we might as well not have an asylum law. Human rights have been trampled on. And so it, it's, it's very, you know, immigration, like other issues, healthcare, education, they're all complicated. There's no straightforward answer to anything. But what you can do is try to do the right thing by everybody. And yes, you know, our priority should be America, American economy, American citizens. But at the same time, the American economy, I would go as far as to say, will not survive without immigrants in every every echelon of society and every industry there is. I would agree with that. I think the H-1B has been our hidden weapon and our ace in the hole in so many cases. Um, but moving beyond that real quick, I've got a question. So because <laughs> we've dove so deep into policy, because we're, we're in this time period right now, we're on the horizon of a new administration, 
I'm very, very curious. What, what does the next four years look like for those, for the people in America who are considered the dreamers? That's a really good question. I just got goosebumps. Um, first of all, I feel so proud of our country for actually, even though it was close, for having the the election go in a way that is bringing the first minority woman vice president who comes from an immigrant background. Um, and we're going to have uh, President-elect Biden in office who has had first-hand experience for eight years being at the side of President Obama, who brings so much experience and um, knowledge in policy and how to change policy. So I feel very hopeful that we will have good leadership that will keep America in mind, not everybody who donates to them and, you know, looks after their pockets only. They'll look at, they'll look at America and Americans uh, and what is needed here. So I feel very hopeful for that. Um, I also feel hopeful that they're looking at each area that needs immediate assistance and they're getting leadership in those positions, whether it's health and immigration. So there is um, an immigrant who is uh, going to be the DHS secretary. He used to be the USCIS director, he's going to be the secretary. So you're bringing these experiences and leadership into position to take action. So I feel hopeful. What I think everybody needs to know is that the last four years have taken us back 20 plus years. You know, they have been so drastic and so bad that rewinding these policies will actually take a long time. One of the questions I get to hear every day, and I kid you not, every day, how long will processing take? Every case that happens now, whether it's employment or green card, whichever category, they're all taking two, three years, sometimes more. But they used to take nine months or 12 months at most. Uh, and the trouble is that all these processing times, if you take into account COVID as well, they're going to take a long time to go back to the Obama days. And so time is going to be absolutely essential. Patience is going to be essential from people. And so what I what I expect is hope and patience, if I had to give you two words. But I do think that there have been a lot of strong advocacy, advocacy that has come, uh, come across in the last four years. Um, not just dreamers who have voiced their um, dreams and, and all the, the desires that they have, but every community has come together, whether it's the em employers' communities, the business community, the uh, human rights communities, they all come together to have these voices heard because it was apparent that if you did not come together, these voices would not be str as strong as they needed to be. And so what I'm trying to remind people is just because we have Biden-Harris in office from January does not mean that we sit back and say, okay, you've now got it, I'll go back to doing my job. No, just as we were part of this election process to get them in place, we are part of the process of fixing things too. We need to continue that mindset and we need to be part of the solution as well. So it's very important that we have hope, we have patience and we continue to work. Now, for my practice, that really means that my clients need their hands held tightly still and I need to keep them posted on how these changes are going to affect them. And that, you know, one of the things I've told.
asked over and over again over the last four years, call your representative. You know, I can do the lawyering, but I cannot push things. I cannot have Congress hear me in the same way your senator can actually push the needle. And so, you know, I, I'm hopeful. I feel like my Thanksgiving was so much better because the results were, you know, in the hopeful direction. And I think I'm going to have a much better holiday season because I'm going into it with hope. But January will come along and I'm just going to be hitting the ground running continuously with my advocacy that I've built on over the last four years. And my books are so important because I think people cannot remember, forget the work we did. The moment you forget history, that's when the future is in jeopardy. Just like you asked, you know, from the outset, people have forgotten history and therefore they think immigrants are not good for the country. Similarly, we cannot forget the last four years because that's going to drive what we do in the future as citizens, as Americans, as residents in this country. Tell me a little bit about the startup visa and what that book meant for you. Um, I know you have another book out <laughs> that's come that's just come out, but I kind of want to just give everybody an understanding uh, your, of your first book and, and what you were hoping uh, what you were hoping to achieve when you when you put that book out. I'm so glad you asked me that question. Thank you, because that book was written in 2015, and in 2020, as we uh, you know are in this economic crisis that book has more meaning and relevance today than it did in 2015. But the backstory is, I started my law firm, Watson Immigration Law, in 2009. We were in the height of recession. And at that time, a lot of big companies, I live in Seattle, there's the Microsoft and Amazon and Boeing and all sorts of other tech companies, they started to lay people off. And we spoke earlier about immigrants needed to, needing to be sponsored. The moment they are not sponsored with that W-4, that pay stub, uh, that I-9, they are actually undocumented. They're illegally here. And so a lot of these people who are being laid off came to me saying, you know, I've always wanted to have my own business. How do I do that? And I kept saying to them, you know, I'm going to go research the law. There's nothing quite on point. And there really still isn't anything on point. But a new bill was introduced in Congress called the Startup Visa. And I realized in that moment that that is the answer for so many because the modern day startup is very different to how the law was written again in 1950s and 60s in the modern day business world you can have a phone a laptop maybe a printer and you could be running a million dollar business right from your basement but the law doesn't take into account all of these changes the law wants you to have a lot of money in the bank to pay you a salary so you can pay your rent a rent for an office that you don't need anymore, but you need to have an office. They don't take into account the modern day of capital investment that you might get from an angel investor or a capital a venture capital company. They don't take into account any of, the, of those. They don't take into account the sweat equity that you put into your business to then have, you know, Facebook is something that is an example, not necessarily of immigrant um, foundership, but how a business starts in the dormitory. Uh, and how it grows into what it is today. So many examples of businesses like um, WhatsApp, they've created jobs. 
And these technology companies can create jobs for people in America that, you know, we don't have at the moment. Immigrants are, are creative. When they move from one country to another, often they're not moving because they really want to. They're going because either their lives are being persecuted or they have a better opportunity because America allows that, you know, hope, uh, the American dream that we mentioned. And so they can create jobs. If you look at uh, the, all the Fortune 500 companies, they are uh, over 50% of them are either created by immigrants or children of immigrants. If you look at the, the vaccines that are coming out, whether they're in Germany or here, a lot of immigrants who are scientists are creating these vaccines that are today's solution. So the startup visa was really an advocacy um, book that I wrote when immigration reform failed in 2013. And in fact, an immigrant client of mine said to me, why are you not writing a book about this? You are the expert on this. You've written about it so much. Uh, put it in a book. I thought, oh, yeah, I can write a book. And um, the book journey was very different, though. It wasn't as easy as, oh, I've got written articles somewhere, slap them together. <laughs> I suddenly realized, oh, my God, a book is a very different beast. I stayed up from midnight to 5 a.m., you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks writing my book, because by the time my book was written, none of the pieces that I took as my starting point were the same. But it really is an advocacy piece that I really want anybody who cares about businesses, Small businesses, big businesses, the economy, whether you're a politician, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're an investor, you should read this book to understand why immigrants have made a difference in this country, how they are innovative, how they have become, made America part of a global solution. Whether you're wearing Levi's jeans sitting in Southeast Asia or sitting in California, that Levi's jeans was created in America by an immigrant from Europe. We don't know that anymore. We've forgotten history, but the modern day examples are just as good. That's why history is so important for us. So that's what motivated me to write the book. And it's called the Startup Visa Key to Job Growth and Economic Prosperity in America. I never would have thought in 2015 that would be such an incredible title for 2020. You know, and so that's uh, I feel very strongly about why immigrant founders are essential to be part of the economic solution that the new administration will be going into. Okay. Okay. All right. We are going to jump into the landing. We're going to. Chemtrails family, it's your boy AP. I want you to join our Chemtrails book club. For more information, you can click the link in our bio or show notes. Where can our listeners find out more? about immigration policies, uh, particularly those policies that are impacting their communities? Really good question. So many places. But I, the first place I would suggest is um, there is an immigration organization called American Immigration Lawyers Association, AILA. 
ALA.org. They are compiling information on a daily basis. And there's a public um, access area that's private for immigrationists, but public. That is a fountain of information about the daily changes. That's where I get my news. But I also write on my own blog, called What's an Immigration Law? slash blog, because I write about the issues that affect my clients specifically. And my clients are individuals who are sponsoring their family members. My clients are small to medium businesses who are hiring people. My clients are uh, immigrants who are starting companies or are working for companies. And uh, I write about human rights. While my day job is helping all of these issues, I don't, I, a big part of my life is providing pro bono assistance. And so I work in various committees. I've started different models of providing assistance to the vulnerable. I started a nonprofit called the Washington Immigrant Defense Network, where we train lawyers who are not immigration lawyers, and we group them with immigration lawyers to go into court and represent people who don't have lawyers. And that is a big uh, change in the way formalized representation is given. Often organizations will have pro bono lawyers only who don't know what they're doing. And uh, they're learning as they go and they have a mentor. But we have an immigration lawyer who is paid to represent the client and continue the training. And we have taken that model into clinic uh, format because a lot of nonprofit organizations will have monthly clinics for, for people who say I need legal help. And the last four years have drained the energy of immigration lawyers. And so this new model is providing assistance to those who need them in a way that helps the community, but also the lawyers to get in through the doors. And so I'll continue to do all of that too, but those are written on my blog. I also have a, a web a website, uh, sorry, a newsletter. But in addition to that, I have a podcast, as you mentioned, thank you so much. It's called Tamina Talks Immigration. And I talk about, you know, things that really matter to my clients. And that podcast really has a, a new series called Legal Heroes. I'm still releasing episodes, but that series led to my recent book called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. Both of my books are available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and, and they can Google my name to find them. There's, uh, and then I'm available. You know, I can be found on Twitter, Tamina Watson. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. So I c they can't, you know, you, you can't not find me if you're looking for me. <laughs> Now, one last question, because this kind of goes into the uh, your your latest book, Legal Heroes in the Trump Era. What is an airport lawyer, and and how did you play into that? That's such a great question. You know, I have to say that was the first moment in time where I thought. Yes, I'm part of the solution. I think every one of us has to think, well, how can I be part of the solution? That day when the Muslim ban broke, um, the news broke out uh, Friday evening, that was the time when lawyers flocked to the airport. No matter which city you're in, lawyers were at the airport. So was the public. You know, there were protests everywhere. But what there wasn't uh, was a, a, an organized way to get lawyers to the people who needed them. And I became part of a team. We pe People came from different angles, but there were two technology um, organizations that said, hey, how can I help? And then there were lawyers who actually went to the airport. And my book tells this story very nicely, so I'd love for people to read it. Organizing, because I told people, hey, if you need help after the election, I'm here to help you because I am leading a committee with my local lawyers. So my phone and email blew up. I just, you know, my I didn't see my husband and children for four days. 
And so airport lawyer became a, a mechanism in which you could provide legal assistance to distressed passengers, no matter which airport you were. And so it's called airportlawyer.org. Initially, it was manned. Um, it's still, you know, being monitored. And um, one of the lawyers in my book, the, one of the co-founders of yeah, Airport Lawyers is in my book too. Uh, it's really about providing assistance to those who need it in ways you cannot get otherwise. Amazing, amazing example of coming up with a solution for a problem and doing it amazingly fast and truly, truly having an impact on the community. Uh, Tamina, it has been a wonderful interview with you. I'm so glad we had you on. Um, <laughs> I can't thank you enough for making time in your day for us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was uh, very important to me to make sure that these messages are reaching every community. And I know you're serving an important community with very important issues, just as important as immigration. So thank you for weaving this in. All right. All right, everybody. We're going to call it a wrap. Thank you and tune in again next week. Hey, Chemtrail listeners, want to leave a message? Just click the link in our show notes to leave a voicemail. And if you come from a simpler times like myself, just call. Leave us a voicemail at 832-308-0529. And don't forget, all messages can record up to three minutes long. What up, what up? It's your boy AP. Make sure you follow us at Chemtrails Podcast, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Hit us up. Once again, that's Chemtrails Podcast at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Peace out. Get your voice heard at www.chemtrails.mn.co. Join the community. Thank you.